0: present The Grand Canal of Ireland, written and narrated by Grenfell Morton. The readers are Harold Goldblatt, Alec Maclay and Stella McCusker.
1: Throughout history, Ireland's rivers and lakes have been scenes of conflict rather than peaceful navigation. Lochney, for example, was a scene of dramatic naval warfare in the time of Elizabeth I, when Chichester's warships raided the Tyrone shores. It was not until after the plantation of Ulster that people began to think of exploiting the eel and salmon fisheries of the Ban and Loughnay, and in 1637 a proposal was made to link Loughnay to the Lagan by building a canal. King William III, in 1690, expressed the opinion that by the building of canals, Ireland could become a second Holland. Accordingly, in the first decades of the 18th century, the Irish Parliament passed a series of acts to encourage the construction of canals. In 1715, an act was passed to encourage the building of waterways, to ease the inland carriage of goods, and to assist in the reclamation of bogs. Which are not only lost and
2: useless to their owners, Impassable and inaccessible in themselves, but a bar and hindrance to the inland commerce of the habitable remainder, a retreat for malefactors, and an occasion of a corrupt air to the prejudice of the health and lives of the territories adjacent. In
1: 1730, construction of a canal to link the upper ban near Portadown to the port of Murray was begun and opened for navigation in 1742. It was the first major inland canal in the British Isles, a pioneer effort which antedated Brindley's better-known canal for the Duke of Bridgewater. This Newry Canal was seen as a link between the newly opened Tyrodon coal coalfields and the city of Dublin. It was even hoped, through the exploitation of such coalfields, and the improvement of water communications that ireland would soon be able to fulfil dean swift's advice to burn everything english except their people and their coals a further step towards making loch ney the centre of inland navigation in ulster was taken with the opening of a canal from belfast to the harbour at lisburn in 1763 although it was not until 1794 that the lagan navigation was completed and the first barges locked their way through Ellis's gut into the inland sea. Meantime, in 1751, the Irish Parliament had set up a board of inland navigation to investigate the possible lines of canal construction, and in particular the establishment of a link between Dublin right across Ireland to the majestic but largely useless Shannon. One enthusiast saw this project as enabling Ireland, like Ariadne, to spin a web of happiness out of her own bowels. In 1756, a report was placed before
0: the House of Commons, which suggested that the proposed canal across Ireland could follow two routes. One was to begin near the city basin to be carried forward to the River Liffey, to cross the same and to proceed by the rivers Barrow and Brosna into the River Shannon. This was the route followed by the Grand Canal eventually. The second was to be carried west by Castle Nock to the Rye Water and from thence to the rivers Boyne, Deal, Yellow River, Lake Derivara and Camblin. And when executed, will greatly improve this kingdom and be a great encouragement to tillage and planting of timber trees. This northerly route to the Shannon was later to be followed by the Royal Canal,
1: the Grand Canal's unsuccessful and unnecessary rival. Construction of the Grand Canal began in 1756, but the work proceeded slowly, hindered by parliamentary delays, compensation to landowners, and conflicts of opinion about the precise route. In all this, the Dublin Corporation showed an interest. They conceived that...
2: The canal would be a pleasing recreation as well as a salutary walk to the inhabitants of Dublin if trees were planted. Contracts were entered into with Patrick Egan to supply 400 trees at three shillings and three
1: pence per tree, including all expenses of planting. The canal began at James's Street Harbour, not far from the site of Mr Arthur Guinness's brewery, and thence ran in a westerly direction by Clondorkin and Salins. The work proceeded with more energy when, in 1771 the Company of Undertakers of the Grand Canal, was formed, a body destined to survive until its final demise in 1950.
0: Some observers thought their name appropriate. For they buried more money in the bog of Allen than would have cut a spacious canal from Dublin to Limerick. But it's vain to lament over the dead.
1: Only twelve miles of the Grand Canal were open to traffic by 1779, In the following year, the Liffey was crossed by the Leinster Aqueduct, and at Lowtown, work began on the branch to the Barrow. A line opened to a thigh in 1791. Meantime, passenger services began. In 1785, that indefatigable traveller, John Wesley, wrote in his journal, I
2: went with twelve or fourteen of our friends on the canal to Prosperous, it is a most elegant way of travelling, little inferior to the taxcoits of Holland. We had uh, fifty or sixty persons in the boat, many of whom desired me to give them a sermon. I did so, and they were all
1: attention. Another traveller by waterway was a young French aristocrat, the Chevalier de la Tocnay. He sailed from Athai to Dublin, and found the boat very comfortable but costing almost twice the fare, charged
0: in Holland. The boat I travelled in carried a large number of political talkers of the type known as Mouchard. Seeing that I was a foreigner, one of them spoke to me several times on delicate and difficult matters affecting the government. Fearing false interpretations, I responded in ambiguous terms and in the unfounded politic to feign sleep, a very good way of getting out of such difficulties. The canal is a magnificent piece of work, crossing immense tracts of moor, where ten or twelve feet of peat have had to be removed before reaching earth in which the waterway could be cut. Several aqueducts have been necessary, one of them of really prodigious length and height. The section from Lowtown to Philipstown was opened to
1: traffic in 1797. This was difficult to construct as the waterway had to be carried over the treacherous Bog of Allen on an embankment. Great
2: Bog of Allen, swallow down that odious heap called Philipstown, and if they now can swallow more, pray take and welcome
1: Tullamore. The canal was temporarily closed by the rebellion of 1798. Insurgents damaged its banks in places, and military patrols had to be sent out to keep an eye on the locks. When the French landed in the west at Killala, troops were dispatched by barge to Tullamore. Perhaps the fact that they were fresh and not footsore contributed to the victory at Ballinamuck. In 1804, the final section of the canal was opened from Tullamore to Shannon Harbour. To mark the occasion, the directors travelled in a convoy of boats, and issued special instructions for the equipment of the men in charge of the towing horses.
2: The directors will furnish the first four drivers with the use each of one outside coat, one jacket, one pair of trousers, one gold-laced hat for the boat that leads the van, and one silver-laced hat to each of the other three. They are to have good boots or shoes, clean
1: stockings and shirt, and drive horsemanlike. At the Dublin end, a splendid circular line of canal had been built to connect James Street Harbour with the River Liffey at Ring's End. The graceful stone bridges over the canal recall the original directors after whom they were named.
0: Mackey, McKenney, Huband, McCartney, Eustace, Charlemont, latouche clan Brussel, Parnell, Griffith, Harcourt. The increasing
1: passenger traffic led the company into the building of hotels. In Dublin, intending passengers could stop overnight at Portobello, near Rathmines. They departed in the morning, roused by the sound of a horn, having spent nine and fivepence on dinner, bed and breakfast. There was another hotel at Saddens, far too near Dublin to be successful, and at Robertstown. This was situated near the junction for the branch to Athai, Carlo, and the barrow navigation to St Mullins and Waterford. In 1805, Sir John Carr travelled on the canal boat between Athy and Dublin. Precisely as the clock struck one, the towing horse started, and we slipped through the
2: water in the most delightful manner imaginable at the rate of four miles an hour. The boat appeared to be about 35 feet long, having a raised cabin, its roof forming a deck to walk upon. Uh, the cabin was divided into a room for the principal passengers, having cushioned seats and windows on each side, and a long table in the middle, and into another room for the servants of the vessel. The day was very fine, and the company very respectable and pleasant. We had an excellent dinner on board, consisting of a leg of boiled mutton, turkey, ham, vegetables, porter, and a pint of wine each, at four shillings and ten pence a head, our liquid road led through a very fine country, adorned with several noble seats. We slept at Robertstown, where there is a noble inn belonging to the canal company, and before daylight set off for Dublin, where, after descending a great number of locks and passing through a long avenue of fine elms, we arrived about ten o'clock a m All the regulations of these boats are excellent. I was so delighted with my canal conveyance that if the objects which I had in view had not been so powerful, I verily think I should have spent the rest of my time in Ireland in the Athai Canal boat.
1: By 1812, a year of wartime prosperity for Ireland, the revenues arising from the passage boats continued to increase. The company by this time was running feeder services by coach to connect with the boats from such towns as Burr, Athlone and Ballinasloe. A larger scheme now appeared. This was to render the River Shannon navigable from Loch Allen to the sea, so opening water communications between Limerick, Dublin and Liverpool. Already there was a considerable flow of flour, barley, meal, malt, potatoes, turf, and building materials along the canal to Dublin, while general merchandise, coal, grain, manure, and barrels of Guinness, travelled westwards from the capital. The improvement of the Shannon would certainly increase the flow of traffic, for it was believed that... That the inland navigation of Ireland being
2: extended would enable England to draw her supplies of corn from counties where both the land and the labourers are comparatively idle, and in return for the produce of the same, to throw into the interior her woollen and cotton manufactory, her glass, earthenware, hardware, tea, sugar,
1: hats and hosiery, leather, salt and coals. Indeed, the number of boats passing from the Grand Canal into the Shannon more than trebled between 1822 and 1833. Part of this increase was due to the opening of the branch to the market town of Ballinasloe, although it was the branch canals to Mount Medic and to Monaster Evan which fulfilled the saying that canals are like trees, their fruits are to be expected principally from their branches. By 1833 the ten regular passage boats were scarcely able to cope with the increasing volume of passenger traffic. Moreover, they were slow. A boat left Portobello at four o'clock in the morning, and the passengers arrived at Shannon Harbour by ten o'clock at night, well-fed and relaxed by the delightful journey, gliding quietly along at three or four miles per hour. This cost a guinea for the first-class passenger, and 14 shillings for the second, so that canal travel was not cheap. Its attraction lay in being much more comfortable than rattling along in contemporary stagecoaches or Bianconi's long cars. General regulations. No servant in livery to be admitted
2: as a passenger in the first cabin. No more than 45 passengers in the first cabin, nor 35 for the second cabin to be admitted into the boat. No second cabin passenger to be permitted to remain on deck. No person is to stand on deck so as to intercept the view of the steerer. No smoking of tobacco to be permitted in any part of the boat, nor any gaming on Sundays under the penalty on the boatmaster of
1: two guineas for each offence. Even dogs were considered by the Canal Company. They were of two kinds, alive and dead. The former could travel on the boats, provided their owners paid the full passenger fare for them. Dead dogs, cats and other nuisances, found floating in the canal, had to be fished out by the lockkeepers and buried in their gardens. Then there was the problem of drink. A noggin of spirits instead of wine,
2: or half a noggin of spirits together with half a pint of wine, allowed to each gentleman in the state cabin after dinner or supper but such allowance of spirits not to be extended to women or children.
1: By 1834, road competition had reached such a pitch
0: that the directors introduced swift passage boats, or flyboats on the canal. They are generally 60 feet in length and 6 feet in breadth and are designed to accommodate 20 first cabin and 32 second cabin passengers, together with the master and the crew, though not infrequently they carry a larger number and travel at the rate of 10 British miles an hour between locks. Two of these boats leave Dublin every morning, one at seven o'clock for Kilbegan, Tullamore and Shannon Harbour, and the other at half past seven for Mount Melick and Athai, from each of which places a boat arrives in Dublin every afternoon about half past four.
1: The fares on these boats were remarkable. The cost per mile for a first cabin passenger was a penny three farthings, and for a second-class passenger was seven-eighths of a penny per mile. The slow night boats... Which cruised along at a mere four miles an hour, charged only one penny a mile. These rates compared to the threepence to fourpence payable on the stage coaches. The flyboats, by day, could traverse the seventy-nine miles from Dublin to Shannon Harbour in eleven hours, and from Dublin to Athai, fifty-four miles, in seven and a half hours. The night boats took nineteen and three quarter hours for the passage from Dublin to Ballinasloe. The bill of fare on these journeys was interesting. On board the boats it was described by the curiously old fashioned term rates of ordinary First Cabin
2: Breakfast with eggs one shilling and eight pence dinner two shillings and sixpence porter per bottle sixpence pint of wine or white wine two shillings and sixpence noggin of spirits one shilling
1: tea or coffee after dinner one shilling. In the second cabin, the passengers had to make do with porter or cider and were not allowed either wines or spirits. As for the cuisine on board, it frequently left much to be desired. In his novel, The Kelly and the O'Kellys, Anthony Trollope gave this account of how his hero, Martin Kelly, made a great play at the eternal
2: half-boiled leg of mutton, which always comes on the table three hours after departure from Portobello. He swallowed huge collops of the raw animal and vast heaps of yellow turnips. Neither love nor drink had affected his appetite, and he ate out his money's worth with the true persevering prudence of a connet
1: man who is firmly determined not to be done. Another fictional traveller was Jack Hinton, the eponymous hero of Charles Lever's novel. Lever, like Trollope, had personal experience of the Grand Canal, Although the picture he paints falls short of the Dickensian warmth and bustle which were the norm.
0: Hinton's fellow travellers on the canal boat were Stout, plain looking country folk, with coats of brown or grey frieze, leather gaiters and thick shoes, returning, I should guess, from the Dublin market, whither they had proceeded with certain droves of bullocks, weathers and hoggets. Jack Hinton preferred their room to their company, and
1: having eaten the leg of mutton and turnips, boiled chickens and ham, a cod and potatoes,
0: he went on deck where he sat down. Watching with a Dutchman's apathy the sedgy banks whose tall flaggers bow their heads beneath the ripple that eddies from the bow, now lifting his eyes from earth to sky, turning from the gaze of the long, dreary tract of bog and moorland to look upon the monotonous jog of the postillion before, the impassive placidity of the helmsman behind, the lazy smoke that seems to lack energy to issue from the little chimney.
1: Down below, the noise and uproar grew louder and more vociferous. Jack Hinton, looking for repose, found that the gentleman below stairs had as much notion of swimming as sleeping. Small wonder, he looked forward to a sound night's sleep in the Shannon Harbour Hotel, a large stone building of some stories high, whose granite portico and wide steps stood in strange contrast to the miserable mud hovels that flanked it on either side.
0: He climbed the steps and entered the hotel. Unlike any other hotel I have ever seen, there was neither stir nor bustle. No burly landlord, no buxom landlady, no dapper waiter with napkin in his arm, no pert-looking chambermaid with a bedroom candlestick. A large hall, dirty and unfurnished, led into a kind of bar, upon whose unpainted shelves a few straggling bottles were ranged together, with some pewter measures and tobacco pipes, while the walls were covered with placards setting forth the regulations for the Grand Canal Hotel, with a list of all the good things to be found therein. I read of rump steaks and roast fowls, of red rounds and sirloins. I resolved to explore further. The coffee-room was empty and had neither chair nor table, I ascended the stairs, my footsteps echoing along the deserted corridor. I opened a door. The apartment, a small one, was full of smoke, and seated upon a low stool was an old woman.
1: Poor Jack Hinton was astonished, begged her pardon, saying he thought he'd entered an hotel.
3: And why wouldn't you think it an hotel? Hasn't it a bar and a coffee room? Isn't the regulations of the house printed and stuck up on all the walls? <coughs> what have you to say against it? isn't
1: it the Grand Canal Hotel? Disconsolate and hungry, Jack retreated down the worn granite steps of the hotel to contemplate once again the wide river moving sluggishly on its yellow current between broad tracts of bog and callow meadowland. Leavers' unflattering picture of the hotel, exaggerated though it may have been, did not betoken the sloth and decay attendant upon the ending of passenger services. Instead, we find in the 1840s the passenger boats taking advantage of the newly opened railways. For instance, on the arrival of the 4.30pm down train from Dublin at Salins, passengers transferred to the canal boat, which was westward bound for Tullamore, Shannon Harbour and Ballinasloe. The return sailing left the dock at Ballinasloe at three o'clock in the afternoon and passengers arrived at Kingsbridge Terminus in Dublin on the connecting train at 10.15 next morning. The canal boats were also linked with the road services provided by the famous Bianconi long cars. These linked Ballinasloe with Westport and Galway and with all the places in the west on Bianconi's network, a network which complemented the railway services, though ultimately, in the 1870s, to be replaced by them. Many people preferred the leisurely pace of canal travel to the fuss and bustle of the railway.
3: Oh, was the dear old slow-going canal boat so much more preferable to this terrible flying at the imminent risk of one's life?
1: A young lady comfortably ensconced in a first-class carriage of the Midland Great Western Railway, overheard two elderly ladies speaking thus and recalled her own impressions of the long 21 hours of freezing in winter and suffocating in summer, congratulating herself on being able to travel by railway from Dublin to Galway in only five and a half hours. What a contrast she remembered between the snug, warm railway carriage and the accommodation on board the canal boat.
3: The cabin was a long, narrow apartment, along either side of which ran a bench covered with red moreen, and hard enough to have been stuffed with paving stones, but I believe it was really with chopped hay. It was capable of accommodating on each seat fifteen on individuals who might sit there comfortably enough in a cold winter's day with a roaring turf fire in the small grate while the boat was being slowly forced through a sheet of ice several inches in thickness... But this was a hot holiday before St. Swithin's Day.
1: The boat was divided into first and second cabins, the latter being at an early stage in the voyage filled with tobacco smoke and odours from the galley. At five o'clock, which seems an odd time, dinner was served to the assembled passengers.
3: At the foot of the table in the saloon was a large dish of bacon and cabbage. While at the head, a splendid leg of mutton, smothered in carrots, parsnips and turnips, stood its ground. Nor did it stand there long. Whether its flavour was improved by the mixture of juices emanating from its several companions, for three or four chickens had been killed and plucked by the grinning cabin boy and added to the cooking pot. Or whether the salubrious breezes blowing from the canal had sharpened the appetites and teeth of the company, I know not... "'but judging from the appearance of the dishes when leaving the table, "'I should say none of them had discovered the secret of the chickens. "'After the dinner, the cloth was removed from the table "'and hot water and glasses appeared. "'I declared my intention of having a small tumbler, "'declining the kindly offer of a clergyman "'who had supplied himself with a small phial of the essence of peppermint, "'which he drank as composedly as his companions "'did their more favourite beverage, whisky.'
1: After dinner, the passengers enjoyed the evening air on deck while the boat moved silently and placidly along across the bog of Adam. They observed the thatched cabins of the peasantry and on the distant horizon, the blue Queen's County hills. Eventually, they descended to the cabin and began to settle down for the night. And this was no easy matter, especially on the pillows supplied by the company.
3: They were little hard roly-polies about two inches in height, and the covering and stuffing were of the same materials used in the benches in which we all sat ourselves down with our pillows, one before each passenger. On the table whereon he was expected to place his weary head and be as comfortable as possible. Both the doors were now carefully closed the six windows ditto and hermetically sealed with large wooden shutters slid over them i still feel the hot steaming air with which the apartment was filled in which the long wicked candles burned dim and dismal and the walls my clothes everything seemed imbued with the breaths of our still sleeping companions there was close by me a window and noiselessly as possible I slid back a small pane, thereby rousing a fellow passenger, who sharply requested it should be closed again. But the shutter proved rambunctious, and no effort of mine would again move it out of its groove. Finally the glass shattered. Nearly all the sleepers were awakened. Some rejoiced over the catastrophe, while others were loud in their complaints and forebodings of all the rheumatisms and sore throats which were bound to follow. And in the midst of all, my sister and I made our escape to the cool fragrance of the deck.
1: One of the attractions of canal boat travel in the 1840s was its cheapness. As a result, over 100,000 people travelled in 1837. This number had increased by 10% in 1844. However, the expenditure in this service absorbed most of the revenue. Furthermore, the fast-fly boats created waves which undermined the canal banks. Relays of extra horses were needed and there was the cost of employing extra lock keepers. Also, the extension and completion of the Great Southern and Western and the Midland Great Western Railways provided a faster service. After the boom years 1845 and 1846, when over 120,000 passengers were carried, the traffic declined. In 1851, it had fallen to under 22,000. And finally, all passenger services ceased at the end of 1852. But the Grand Canal continued to carry a large volume of freight. Beer, brewed in Dublin, could reach Limerick in perfect condition in five days, although the cynics alleged that the bargees replaced what they drank from the casks with canal water. The
2: 1870s were record years for trade on the Grand Canal. And in 1875, 380,000 tonnes were carried on the canal, and much of it in Grand Canal boats. And the men, unlike the barges on the English narrowboats, left their wives and children at home and enjoyed themselves singing about their exploits.
4: Come all ye dryland sitters bold, and listen unto me song. It's only forty verses it won't attend years long. It's all about the advent of ours of a bold young Irish tar who sailed as man before the mast on the good ship Calabar. Well, we sailed along with a favouring breeze the weather it was sublime. But just in the streets to Rialto Bridge where you can't pass two at a time another craft running to us it gave it a serious check. It stove in the starboard paddle-wheel box and destroyed the hurricane deck. Now, when hugging the shore she call a very dangerous part, we ran aground on a lump of coal that wasn't marked down in the chart. And to save ourselves from sinking and to save each precious life, we threw the main deck overboard along with the captain's wife. So we all got out our ammunition for to meet the coming foe. Our swords and board and pikes and all, and gatling guns also. Put on full steam, the captain cried, for we are sorely pressed. But the engineer from the bank replied, the old horse is doing his best.
1: Traffic in the Grand Canal, the Lagan Navigation and the Newry Canal was still significant in volume in Edwardian times. However, the Great War, the interwar depression and the competition from the roads, followed by the Second World War, saw the canals fighting a slowly losing battle. After the war, the canals in the north of Ireland were abandoned, and much of the Lagan navigation now lies beneath the M1 motorway. In 1950, the Grand Canal Company was wound up, and it was absorbed by CIE barges bringing their cargoes of malt and agricultural produce no longer tied up at James's Street Harbour. It seemed as if 200 years of history were at an end. Happily, this proved not to be the case. Inland waterway enthusiasts and lovers of Georgian Dublin combined to preserve the canal as a going concern. Uh, To lose the Royal Canal after the war was a pity, But to have lost the possibility of cruising along the Grand Canal would have been a disaster. And so, today, the former Robertstown Hotel houses a museum of canal history. Tied to a bollard on the quayside lies the old passage boat Pomeroy. The cruising wayfarer can enjoy the waterfront atmosphere and the hospitality of the singing pubs. He can contemplate the prospect of the 18th century canal bridges warmed by the glow of the westering sun and he may still awaken in Shannon Harbour beside the impressive ruins of the old hotel to the irresistible scents of peat smoke and crisply frying bacon coming from the galley. Such is the web of happiness still being woven for the traveller on the Grand Canal.
0: Grand Canal of Ireland was written and narrated by Grenville Morton, lecturer in extramural studies at Queen's University Belfast. Also taking part were Harold Goldblatt, Alec Maclay and Stella McCusker. The Good Ship Calabar was sung by David Hammond, and the programme was produced by Jane Rundle.